Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm thrilled to have Josh Mitchell on the show today. Josh is a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, where he covers economics and student debt. His newest book, The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe, details the dramatic, untold story of student debt in America. Now, I'll be pushing back on Josh today because, as many of you know, I don't necessarily hold the same opinion of the student loan crisis. So we'll look forward to having him sort of defend those positions to me. (laughs) But in this episode, we're going to talk about how we got here and what we need to understand about the student loan crisis. Josh, I'm so pleased to have you here to talk about these issues. Welcome to the show. Thanks. And I'm really excited to talk to you about this stuff. It's a great, interesting discussion. Excellent. Okay, so let's start with the basics. For listeners who have not read The Debt Trap yet, can you give a brief history about what led to our current student loan crisis, as you've called it? Sure. So the opening scene in my book is actually Sputnik. Lyndon Johnson walking outside on one evening with his wife, First Lady Lady Bird Johnson, and some guests. They look up in the sky because the news had just broke that the Soviet Union launched Sputnik. And that created somewhat of a crisis in the United States. Lyndon Johnson felt that the country was falling behind in the space race. And clearly they were because the Soviet Union had beat us to space. And so he instantly pushed for us, for the country to get more college graduates. He felt like this was really a crisis in higher education, that we didn't have enough scientists to go head to head with the Soviet Union. And so that was the impetus for the first student loan program. And then in 1965, Lyndon Johnson, when he was president, because during Sputnik, he was actually the Senate Majority Leader, he turned higher education into this sort of grand social experiment where he wanted to use higher education as a way to level inequality. This was part of the Great Society. And from there, this notion, I think he was the first president to say, going to college is a necessity. It's no longer an option in our economy. And the whole idea was that the country and Congress needed to help as many students as possible go to not just any college, but the college of their choice. And student loans was the cheapest way to pull that off. Congress wanted to help people get into college. They thought it was good for the economy. They thought it was a good investment for students. And they wanted to do it in as cheap of a way as they could. And student loans was the option. And then from there, Wall Street got involved. And I think schools quickly learned that student loans could be a way to enable them to raise tuition. And things quickly went off the tracks. And I'll stop there. That's the gist. That's actually really interesting, Josh, because even though I'm often talking and griping about how college has become part of the American dream, I wasn't familiar with that history. So that's a helpful context. So now tell me, I have been called the student loan crisis denier at times in my career. And you and I have disagreed periodically over the years about these issues. When you say that there's a crisis that has developed, can you be specific about what that is? Because Part of my issue with the public narrative is that it's very not specific. And I think when you drill down, some of the beliefs are uh, represent misunderstandings. So I'm hoping with your very nuanced understanding, you can explain to me where is the crisis precisely? Yeah, can I start by talking about how my understanding of student loans evolved over time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I started covering this for the journal in 2012. 
So I've covered it for about nine years. And then full transparency and honesty, I thought the same thing when I started covering student loans, which was a lot of these activists are saying it's a crisis. That's just simply them blowing this out of proportion. And there's a saying in Washington that everything is a crisis. I mean, the word crisis is used probably a thousand times a day in Washington. And so I was skeptical of the notion that there was a crisis. But then the more I wrote about this, I would get emails and emails and emails from people who got into student debt. And what they described to me were often these heartbreaking stories. And so to answer your question, I think there's both anecdotal evidence that there's a crisis. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that in a minute. But there's also data showing this. I mean, if you look at how many people have defaulted on their loans, there's about 8 million. It's hard to know exactly how many, but let's just say there's about 7 to 8 million, according to the education department. That's not that far off from how many people had their homes foreclosed upon during the housing crisis. And I think there is a consensus there was a housing crisis, right? Right. And so it's in the same ballpark. I think there was something like 9 or 10 million, don't quote me on that, who had their homes foreclosed upon after the housing crash. So if you just look at defaulters, I think it's fair to say that there's a crisis there. I also, and I think in your book, you say this, that there's small crises. There's like a series of problems. Student debt is not just one big problem. There's like sort of individual problems that build up to being one big problem. I know you don't like the word crisis, but (laughs) I make the same argument in my book. And so let me tell you about some of the characters that convinced me that there's a crisis. I interviewed a woman, a single mother of two children who, when she was a secretary in the 90s, and she felt like she was in a dead-end job. And she felt the only way to boost her career earnings and really be able to have a middle-class lifestyle was to go to college. And so one day she had this epiphany that she wanted to enroll in college, and she enrolled in college, and she wanted to be a psychologist. And she quickly found out after enrolling that not only do you have to go to college to be a psychologist, but because the state of New Jersey requires those who own a psychology practice to have a PhD, she would have to go to grad school. So she, in order to become a psychologist, which was her dream, her version of the American dream, she had to do about 10 years of schooling. And she acquired $120,000 in debt at the end of the day. And she felt it was an investment. That was what everyone told her. That was what the Clinton administration characterized debt as. That was what Sally May, her lender, characterized debt as. That's what colleges characterized debt as. This is good debt. And so she leaves with $120,000 in debt. She never ended up making more than $75,000 as a psychologist. And so her student debt quickly became quicksand. She kept on making monthly payments, which were about 700 bucks a month that she was giving to Sally May. And most of that was just interest. And she could never get ahead of her bills. And she had individual crises outside of her student loans that just compounded the student debt problem because life happens. So she got a divorce. And one point, her husband wasn't making child payments to her. And so she called Sally May and she went into forbearance based on that phone call, not realizing that a year later, when she got back on her feet, the balance rose. And so all this time, 17 years later, she was making all these payments and she still owed $100,000. And she like kept on downsizing as she was taking care of her two kids on her own to try to keep up with the payments. And she couldn't and she wasn't saving anything for her own retirement. She wasn't saving anything for her own for her own kids education. She was staying up late at night so stressed. And 
She told me one story about how a tree fed out, fell on her house one day and split her house in half. And the next day, she's like so worried about staying on top of her student loan payment. She went into work, even though her house is like destroyed. No one was hurt, thank God. But that to me is its own version of a crisis. And it's hard to look at, let's just take a look at the lack of retirement savings that a lot of people have. I think student debt is one factor. That's not going to cause the economy in and of itself to crash. But I think that that is a version of a crisis. And I think that she felt, I know that she felt, she was in constant crisis mode. And so if you extrapolate that story by like millions of people, I think that there is a crisis. Now, does that mean it's going to crash the economy? No, I actually argue it's not. I actually argue there's a more subtle problem there. But it is a problem. And again, I would hear these stories over and over and over again. And so that's when I was convinced over time, wait a minute, how exactly do we as reporters and economists define what a crisis is? Does it take the economy to actually crash before we call it a crisis? Or are there other ways we could define it? Does that answer your question? Yeah. Even as the cold-hearted economist that I am, you know, I hear that story and others like it. And I think, of course, this poor woman who's in this situation. And then I think the struggle is how do we reconcile stories like that? Obviously, it seems like a, a sad scenario with the data, which says that on average, when people make investments in higher education and they borrow to do so, they increase their wealth over the course of their lifetime on average, right? So we know that's not true for everybody, but we also know there are safety nets that have been developed for the people who don't see that return. So do you think this is a case of that sort of economic thinking not capturing enough of the story? Yeah, well, I think the average obscures a lot of variation. And again, I've thought about this over and over. So I think your question is a very good one. And it's something that I constantly pose myself. And one of the immediate things I do when when people pose this question to me is I, you know, I don't want to get too wonky here. But if you if you pull up the this data set that the New York Federal Reserve puts out every quarter showing how many people are in default on different types of loans, whether it's mortgages, whether it's auto loans, whether it's student loans. Let's just go back to 2009 and 2010 at the height of the housing crash. Well, more than 85% of people were current on their mortgages. So on average, having a mortgage during the housing crisis was still a very good investment and people were still current on them. And yet the 10% who were in default were in default. And, and that we again, we consider that a crisis. And so again, I think student loans is the case of the frog slowly boiling in the pot. And we're just so used to defining a crisis as what we went through with the housing crash that we kind of take for granted a lot of these problems that the averages obscure. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I remember starting to write about student loans and the, the quote unquote crisis about three years after the mortgage crisis began. And I think at that time, everyone was looking for a parallel structure in, in crisis. And we could pretty easily rule that out just because of the fundamentals of the market. But the fact that averages obscure what's happening for the extremes, that makes sense, right? It's like not everybody has the typical experience. Some people do really well. Some people end up in really dire circumstances. And so the kind of strict policy economist type in me wants to say, well, yeah, but we've got safety nets. We've got income-driven repayment that protects people who don't see that return. So why is that not working in the cases that you've seen in your reporting? 
One of the things that I think income-based repayment has done is, and it's it's been sort of like a band-aid in that it's not addressing some of the underlying problems. And I think in some ways, income-based repayment exacerbates the underlying problems. I agree with you there. Just for listeners who don't know what income-based repayment is, it's this Before around 2010, the vast majority of people who had a student loan would come out of college and the repayment period would be 10 years. They would have like a fixed monthly payment, whatever that would be, and they would typically pay that over 10 years. Just like a car loan or a fixed mortgage or something. Right. So it was $500, $600, depending on the interest rate, which Congress sets and has changed over time, and also depending on the principal. You would pay over a 10 year period. Now, there was also this separate program called consolidation, where if your balance was too big, you could spread it out over up to 30 years. But most people did it over 10 years. What ended up happening is a lot of people after the Great Recession and after this huge run up in student debt, they were coming out of college and graduate school and they just weren't able to make those monthly payments or they weren't willing in some cases to make those monthly payments. I think it was more of the case of they weren't able to. And the borrower example that I gave is a perfect example. I mean, she has $120,000 in debt just on principal alone. If you wanted to pay off the principal in 10 years without any interest, that would be $1,000 a month at an interest well over $1,000. And again, like, think about that. She's a single mom and she's a psychologist making $75,000. Like, that's just no one, no one can make that payment. And I think that's what happened with a lot of people. And so income-based repayment was this option that had been in the law for a while, but that Barack Obama as president very much promoted and used an executive action to sweeten the terms of. And expand, right? And expand. It allows people, it allows basically anyone with a federal student loan to make a monthly payment that's equivalent to about 10% of their income, adjusted gross income, there's a formula. So it, it, it said, look, if you can't make $600, set it at your income. And in a lot of cases, that meant that borrowers were able to reduce their monthly payments by hundreds of dollars. However, the repayment period was extended to up to 25 years, no longer 10 years. Interest continued to accrue. And up until recently, the law said that you would be taxed on your income. After 25 years, the government would forgive the balance, but you would be taxed on that as though it were ordinary income. So if your balance is hundreds of thousands of dollars by the end of that period, your tax bill is going to immediately increase by thousands of dollars. So getting back to your question, income-based repayment helps you stay current, but I think in a lot of cases, it's increasing the amount that borrowers are paying for their education. Not in all cases, but in a lot of cases. And it's further exacerbating what I think is the underlying issue, which is that a lot of colleges are and graduate school are charging prices without restraint and have done that for 30 years. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Okay, so then it seems like we actually are on the same page. I think <laughs> I'm bringing you are. around to my thinking. That's why we're friends, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop there because I'm going on and I want this to be more of a conversation. But so, yes, I think that it's exacerbating some of the problems that I lay out in my book. Yes. So let me ask, higher ed finance reform is like at the center of national attention in a way that it really hasn't been before, at least in, in my career. So what happens in your view if nothing changes, right? Because we're talking about all these radical things, but like more, the most likely outcome is that we don't have any changes at all. Where does that take us? Well, so one of the things that's happened recently is more and more debt is being taken out by parents of undergraduates and by grad students. So graduate school debt is really 
the big thing now. My colleagues at the Journal just had this great story about Columbia University and other prestigious institutions having these master's programs where students take out well over $100,000, but then they come out of grad school in some master's programs, not all of them, but in some of these master programs, they come out making like $30,000, $50,000 a year. And so again, I think what's happening now is, is grad school is graduate debt is growing. There was recently a shift, according to this article that my colleagues reported out, that now this year, and it was only recently that this happened, most student debt that the government gives out every year is now either parents or grad students, not undergraduates. So that's the new trend. That's interesting, because if you think about it, if you know how the aid awards work, undergraduates are capped, right, at at how much they can borrow. So we're kind of at the max there, right? We can get more people borrowing up to the max, but to some extent, the problem there is constrained. And you're right. I think that's really insightful that the growing problem is going to be in these other unconstrained spaces. Right. And getting back to this, I think, ties into your original question, which is, what is the crisis? Well, one of the crisis points, I think, is a lot of retirees are having their Social Security checks garnished. I wrote about this several years ago. There was a GAO report on this very issue that showed, I think, over 10 years or something, a million people had had Social Security checks garnished, and that a lot of those people, once their checks were garnished, their wages were below the poverty line. Now, there is a limit as to how much the government can garnish your Social Security check, but nonetheless, like, they're still garnishing checks of people who have no other source of income to repay their student debt. And I think that problem is only going to grow as more and more older people take out debt for their children, parent loans, or take out or still paying down their own debt. And the statistics show that. Student debt is not just an issue of like 25-year-olds. It's it's increasingly 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds. I think a lot of the trends that we've seen in the past 10 years are just going to grow without any changes. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's take that and get sort of practical for a minute here. Imagine you're talking to someone who's trying to send their child off to their dream college next year and trying to figure out how to make it work. And what do you tell them? I mean, the access to debt opens opportunities to many that would not otherwise be available. So how do you balance that with what you're saying, which is that very often, or at least often enough, people are ending up in bad circumstances? You know, so I try to avoid the role of financial advisor. Like to (laughs) me, that's like a really (laughs) personal... But I'm still going to make you answer it here today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So as a reporter, I try to present clarity. So let's just put it that way. There are cheap options, and I don't think people realize that. Or maybe they do, but they question the so-called return on investment of the cheap options. And let me just tell you, I was interviewing one of the characters in my book is Al Lord. He was the swashbuckling CEO of Sally May from 97 until 2005, and then he came back a few years later as CEO. And so I think more than anyone, he had this front row seat and was a very active, played a very active role in student loans growing in the 2000s. Sally Mae was this huge lender. I asked him this the other day, or I was talking to him about this the other day. He went to Penn State in the 60s and, you know, where he said tuition was $150 per semester. And so he was very proud that he went to a cheap state school at the time. And he worked in in a grocery store bagging groceries to pay his, his bill. 
he said he slacked off most of his time there, but it, but he got serious within his senior year because he knew that he needed to get serious in order to get a job. So he graduated and he landed a job at a big accounting firm and he had like this tremendous drive. He wanted to make money, but I was talking to him the other day and he was reflecting on his time at Sally May and on how tuition is just so damn high. He's feeling the pain right now of high tuition because he's paying for all of his grandchildren to go to these private schools. He said, you'll never convince me that the the difference in dollars between community college and private college is worth it. He said by the time he was 40, he had Harvard MBAs working for him, the guy who paid $150 a semester at a state school. So even though he got a lot of money off of, um, he made a lot of money off of uh, prestigious colleges because they, their students were taking loans from Sally May, he himself is saying, hey, take the cheaper options if you can. He ran a company and he said he would look at characteristics like how much drive does a person have and what are their communication skills and not necessarily whether they went to Harvard. So I guess to answer your question, that's a roundabout way of saying there are cheaper options. And I think people should be aware of those and really just go into student debt with eyes wide open, which your book, I think, helps them do. Do you think that the confusion between price and quality is something that's really derailing the system in a big way, meaning that people are misunderstanding or believing that a high price tag is indicative of quality. I mean, do you think that's a a really a systemic problem that we should grapple with in some way? I think, yes. Chapter three of my book pinpoints the era of skyrocketing tuition starting in the 80s. I'm not the first person to report this out, so I can't take credit for this. People like Kevin Carey has a great book that I read as part of my research in my own book called The End of College, where he profiled Stephen Joel Trackenberg, the president at George Washington University, who was one of the pioneers of this idea that if you charged higher tuition, students would think you're a better school, more prestigious school, simply because it was more expensive. And this is called the Chivas-Regal effect. There was another president of a college who applied this term that I interviewed for my book. The Chivas-Regal effect refers to whiskey. It's a whiskey brand. And the idea is if you're an uninformed consumer and you're looking to buy whiskey, you go into the liquor store and you see two brands and one is more expensive you know nothing else about the actual quality of the whiskey. You just assume that the more expensive one is the better one. And presidents figured this out. College presidents figured this out in the 80s. And they're, the, a lot of them are very open about this, that they raised tuition sort of as, as an experiment to see how consumers would respond. And actually, student applications went up, not down, which is kind of like the reverse of basic economics. You know, it's like basic economics flicked, flipped on its head, raised prices and, and demand goes up, not down. And so, yes, I do think that that's been an issue. I do think, though, there's been a shift in the past five years. You do? Okay. I do. I think consumers, students, families have at least polls show have become more skeptical of this proposition that college is worth it at any, at any cost. And I think that there is this sort of broader skepticism of that notion and that students and parents and in some cases are becoming pickier and more less willing to pay high prices. I don't think that's happening completely across the board, but I do think that there has been a little bit of a shift. Yeah, I think that's good. That makes me feel optimistic. So I want to ask you two questions here. Who should read your book? And two, what is the biggest takeaway that you want readers to really capture from your book? If you have a student loan or if you're a parent who is anxious about college, you should read my book. If you've ever asked the question why, as in why is the cost of college so damn high, 
Why is graduate school so damn high? Why do we have a student loan system in the first place? If you've ever asked yourself that question, my book answers that. If you're a taxpayer who is frustrated about the growing costs to the to taxpayers of the higher education system and the student loan system, if you're frustrated by that, if you feel like a lot of this money is being spent inefficiently, read my book because I explain in detail how this system evolved and why this has why this happened. Why did college tuition rise so quickly? Why did the system become very opaque and costly to taxpayers? It answers all of those questions. And if you're a policymaker, you should read my book because right now there's this huge discussion in DC about what to do about higher education finance, how to pay for college how to help families pay for college, whether college should be free, whether debt should be forgiven, what to do about the student loan program in general. As that discussion heats up, I think it is so crucial for lawmakers and policymakers to understand the whole history of the program, to really understand where things went off track, how the good intentions of policymakers led to unintended side effects. So I think that policymakers, parents, students should read my book and anyone who's interested in history and economics and finance and anyone who wants to read a suspenseful good read. I tried to use the stories of interesting characters to tell the story. I didn't want to simply write a finance book. I wanted to tell a story. So everyone should buy my book. <laughs> it sounds like I was about to say pretty much everyone is captured in one of those groups. So just to remind listeners, Josh's new book is called The Debt Trap, How Student Loans Became a National Catastrophe. I always make sure to read everything that Josh writes. So I would recommend that you all read this as well. And Josh, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And the link is bit.ly slash debt trap book. So B-I-T dot L-Y slash debt trap book. But you can just Google it, debt trap by Josh Mitchell, and you'll find it. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is a fun conversation. Great. And we'll link to that in the program description. Thanks again, Josh. Thank you. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.